The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, how's it going? All right, you guys awake? Ready to do some some uh, research here? Yeah, excellent, wonderful. Hey, uh, we're going to be in James chapter 4 to begin with, and we're going to work our way backwards through the book of James. Uh, the guys will be coming around, passing out uh, just a, a, something I wanted to put in your hands. It's just practical tools, and we're, we're going to end there. So just hang on to that while we kind of walk through this together in the Scriptures. Uh, so tonight, we are uh, continuing our home improvement series. Week one, we started out, and Pastor Jeff walked us through Covenant. What, does, what is marriage to begin with? Who owns the rights on that? I mean, whose idea was it in the first place? Why is it that every culture on the planet observes this, this sort of solemnizing of, of a relationship that really could just remain casual and no harm, no foul? Why, why make it so official, so exclusive? Why is that something that's that's intrinsic to every culture. Well, the Bible tells us because marriage originated with God. And it started with the first man and the first woman, and it spread to every culture throughout the planet as a result of that. The home, the family, was God's idea. It was his brainchild. So we we laid that foundation, and, and then Sam, the next week, walked us through friendship. And what... How does friendship play into a family situation? Whether, that we're, whether we're talking about parents and children or whether we're talking about marriage or whether we're talking about grandparents and grandkids, all family relationships, the basis of, of good, healthy connection with one another is essentially friendship. And he gave us some great points, some great tips about uh, having time that is uh, side-by-side and face-to-face and back-to-back. Some really good stuff for us to chew on. And then last week, he walked us through roles. Why roles are important. That roles actually flow out of the nature and character of God. That God the Father maintains a role. And yet, Jesus is equal with God in every way. And he's submitted to the will of the Father. And the Spirit is also submitted to the will of the Father. And yet, they work in perfect harmony. They have different roles and functions within the Godhead, within the Trinity. And out of that, the design for the family flows and makes its way forward too. And when we find our place in God's design, we're working with how we've been made. We're not not resisting God's created design. We're, we're We're partnering with how God has made us to function. And there's such joy in that, such safety and protection and and partnership. And it's it's awesome. And so he walked us through roles. This week, we're going to tackle communication. Next week, we're going to talk about sex. Now, I'm not sure how this happened. I think it has something to do with my Song of Solomon teaching. But I I got elected to do uh, the sex talk again. I think maybe it's because I can say sex without giggling like a junior higher, and, you know, it might be something like that. Uh, But we're going to talk about that next week. And then lastly, Brent is going to walk us through in the first week of February, on February 7th. He's going to walk us through legacy. What does it look like to think about your family when you're gone? 
What does it look like beyond your years, your, your children and your children's children? And what comes way down the road? What, what seeds are you planting now that will bring a harvest when your name isn't even remembered any longer? Good stuff that we're meditating on here as we continue to think about how we can improve our homes, how we can improve our families. Hey, before we dive into the scriptures, would you, would you do this with me? Would you bow your heads and let's go to the Lord with our hearts? Father, as we talk about communication, uh, I am keenly aware of my own deficiencies in this. And as a matter of fact, uh, as I think about trying to, to communicate this well, I pray that you would bring clarity by your spirit, that the simplicity of how you've made us and what you desire for us would come ringing through and where we struggle, God, where we, where we have difficulty in communication, that you would highlight those areas by your spirit. Lord, that you would equip us with truth so that we might grow in our communication and our ability to communicate with one another, that you would set a vision for what it looks like to talk to each other in love within a family. So God, have your way in us. May your word have its full effect in us. May it be the sword that cuts us and the scalpel that heals us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So, opening question here. How important are words? Maybe you grew up with that... that the sort of old rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, then, you know, back in the 90s, I said, no, no, words hurt. You know, like they, they, they hurt us. Somehow in the 2000s, that got confused, and now every word hurts you. <laughs> and nobody's resilient, and everybody's having problems with, hey, everything you say hurts me, it wounds me, I need a safe space. Uh, that's the world that we live in now. But, but how important are words to you? Better yet, how important is communication, not just words, but communication and mutual understanding? Imagine for a moment with me that, that you, a couple of weeks ago, took a vacation, and you are standing on a beach in paradise. Uh, the, the breeze is gently blowing across white sand beaches and the waves are crashing and palm trees are just sort of flowing in the wind. And you, you even think to yourself, oh, man, I hope I never have to leave this place. <laughs> it is so beautiful here. I don't ever want to have to go back to real life in the Pacific Northwest where it's cold and winter there. And you're standing on that beach and thinking those thoughts and absorbing this moment as you, as you ponder what it would be like to live on this island oasis, and then suddenly your cell phone rings. You pick it up, and then you read this message right here. How badly do you want off the island at that moment? In, in, in one second time, one second, one just brief moment, you would go from, 
I love this place. I never want to leave. And then words appear on a screen. And it changes everything. How powerful are words? How amazing is it that words have the ability to accomplish so much for good and at the same time, the same words wielded in the wrong hands can achieve so much destruction? How important are words? Well, from God's perspective, words and communication are of eternal value. Do you know in the New Testament, Jesus said this, that a man will give an account for every idle word that is spoken. Did you know he said that? That's incredible to think about the value of words to Jesus. Now think about it. Everything that exists in the world exists by the mere agreement of truth of what God has said. So the creation story in the Bible, it opens up and, and, and there is nothing. There, there is, there's not space. God is not occupying space. He creates space. <laughs> there is no time. There is no matter. There is God. And in the middle of that, he says, space, be, words. And space is. Planets be, and they are. Oceans be, and stand apart from the, 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 the land, and you cannot cross this far over any longer, and you must maintain this boundary. And the oceans bow down to their creator, and they obey. Gravity exists, and gravity obeys. Molecules function in this way, obey these laws of physics, and even down to the molecular structure, the world is held together literally by the command, by the words of God. God looks on it all. <laughs> he sees the wisdom of the genetic code, the DNA. He sees how words guide the formation of life and give shape to plants and animals by the command of God that is woven into the fabric of his creation. Everything that exists, exists by the words of God. And he looks at it all and he says, oh, it is good. <laughs> Look at how good it is. Look at how we agree. I command, you do. I say, you surrender. Look at how awesome it is. It's good. And on the sixth day, he makes man. He creates man, and he gives, man's, he gives man words that lead to life and preserve and protect him. What's the very first thing that the enemy does, though? He comes to Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he, and he says to him, has God really said? 
is this really what he means? He questions the words of God. As a result of that, every sin and sorrow that has ever come has been the result of choosing not to surrender to the words of God. Satan's demise is then shared by Adam and Eve as they join him in rebelling against the truthful words of God in that moment, they exchange, Romans 1 tells us, the truth of God for what? A lie. And they began to worship and serve the things that have been made and created by the words of God rather than the creator, the one who gave those commands in the first place. So the question is, well, how does God fix this? How does, how does he put it all back together? It's been broken. It's been shattered by the disagreement with the truth of what God has said, with the argument against his words. It's all been plunged into this, this, this mess now. And how does it get replaced? How does it, how does it get fixed? How does the ship get righted? How does God intend to fix this disruption to the code that he has written? How will God make right the universe that has been damaged? How does he do it? Through words. Through more truth. <laughs> Even in the very moment that Adam and Eve sin and fall, what is God's first response? He comes to them with the words of truth, with a promise. He says, mark my words. Mark it. I'm sending a rescuer. He's going to come and he's going to save He's going to redeem. He's going to crush the head of this serpent who has done all this destruction and this damage. He's coming. He's coming from you, Eve, from the seed of woman. This is happening, and he makes a promise. And he records it for us from the very beginning so that we would know that even in the, uh, the moment of our rebellion, his heart is towards reconciliation. His heart is towards healing. His heart is towards oneness. What has been broken, he desires to bring back together. So how does God intend to fix it? Through words. He says it to Adam and Eve, and then through a succession of words, his rescuer is continued to be promised about. God continues to shape that promise and make it really, really clear so throughout every generation they would know exactly when the words of God became true. And so he says, I'm going to send a son of Abraham, and through him all of the nations will be blessed. I'm going, to, I'm going to provide a lamb because I am Jehovah Jireh that will be a substitute not just for Isaac, but for every person who believes in him. I'm going to be the ladder that Jacob saw as a passageway to heaven as he laid his head upon the rock. I'm sending a rescuer who is a lion from the tribe of Judah, and the scepter will not depart from his hands. He will rule an eternal kingdom. By the way, he's going to be a lamb like at Passover who rescues you from the consequences of rebellion against me and death, the judgment that is due. 
He's going to be your provision from heaven like manna. He is going to be the rock that was struck in order that living water might sustain and heal a nation. He's going to be the better sacrifice whose blood was sprinkled not upon an altar here on earth, but upon the very throne of God as a continual reminder that my sins, that your sins were paid for. He's going to be a prophet who speaks words of truth greater than Moses. He's going to be an eternal great high priest that stands before the Father on behalf of us and ever lives to make intercession for us. He's going to be the greater Yeshua, the greater Joshua, who leads us into all that God has promised and fights for us. He's going to be the faithful judge who leads and fights for his people's freedom. He's going to be the son of David, a king who has a kingdom without end. He's going to be the kinsman redeemer. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be the prince of peace, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor. He's going to be the suffering servant whom it pleased the father to bruise on our behalf. He's going to be the baby in Bethlehem, the new covenant maker, the one who breaks out of us, rips out from us the heart of stone and puts in us a heart of flesh. He's going to be the new temple, the meeting place with God. He's going to be, as John the Baptist would say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or as John the Apostle said, he is going to be the Word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. The message about God's heart, the lie that was told by the enemy in the very beginning is undone by the display of God's heart in Jesus. So much so that Hebrews 1 puts it this way. It says this long ago, at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. How? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making a purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Having spoken through his son definitively, what did he do? He sent us. With what? What are we armed with? We're lambs among wolves. What are we armed with? How are we equipped? What, what, what do we have that can make any dent in this broken and chaotic world? We have words. We have the words of truth, the words of the gospel. He sent us to preach and proclaim with words the message of the gospel in order that the kingdom of God might continue to grow and fill up the whole earth. And in 2,000 years ago, in an upper room, that message started with 120 people. We're going like 2 billion strong right now. 
in 2,000 years. We're talking about before the internet, if we can remember that far back. Before radios, before... How? How did this happen? How did we grow to that place? Through words. Through people like you and me speaking what is true. Displaying the heart of God through us. The message that God preached through Jesus is now being lived through us. We become the ministers of reconciliation. Bringing together what is broken. So how important are words? How important is communication? God would say, eternally important. You see, with the power of words, people have been cast into hell. Wars have been fought. People have died. Families have been destroyed. Friendships have been broken. With the power of words... The dead have been raised. Souls have been saved. Slaves have been freed. Nations have been healed. The oppressed have been restored. The wounded have been cared for and made whole. All through the power of words. Words are containers for truth or lies. For things that are in agreement with God or things that are at war with God. They have the power to give life, and they have the power to destroy. Words are simultaneously the way in which God saves his people and the way that Satan destroys them. So then, if words can be either this, this incredible power to save and bring life and heal or this incredible power to destroy Hold captive people and enslave them. What's the difference? How, how do we know what, what determines? What are the factors that determine and that dictate whether words will heal or whether or not they will bring destruction? It's really two things. It's, it's whether or not the words that are said are true and what is the heart of the person who wields those words is it true and what's in the heart of the person that wields them you can say true things with the intent of hurting and wounding people can't you true truths for the purpose of scarring and wounding and destroying so it's those two things is it true and what's in the heart of the person who wields those words so how does communication break down? What, what happens there? How does, how does everything get monkeyed up? Have you, have you ever struggled with that? Have you ever had that moment? Maybe it's with a friend or maybe it's with a coworker or um, a spouse or a child and, and the conversation starts out good and you think, oh, this is productive. This is going great. This is going places. And then all of a sudden, two hours later, you're like, I've always hated your mom, right? It's like, whoa, where did that come from? How did we land there? Right? How did we get to that place? What happens? Well, it breaks down when things are said that are either not true or words are used as weapons to wound from a sinful heart. They're used as leverage or power over another person. 
and the intent is to move them in some way or wound them in some way or manipulate or get them to be something that you want them to be. And that's where communication really begins to break down. So here's the question. Here's the big question. This is what we're asking. How do we stop that? How do we keep words that have such power, power to bring life and power to bring death, how do we stop them from becoming so toxic in a home, in a friendship, in a church, in a workplace? How do we stop that? Here's the short answer. I'll give it to you up front. Ready? We learn to communicate like God. The truth in love. We learn to speak the truth in love. James here is so incredibly practical. James gives us specific and special insight into how words work in the hearts of us as people and what begins to fall apart. So as I, as I ask this question, we're going to look at what James says here in James chapter 4 and then backtrack all the way to James chapter 1. And we're going to come to an understanding of, of ways in which we can learn to communicate like God. And the first key in this, the first key in this is to start with your heart. Jesus put it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. Where does communication start? It starts right here. It starts in our hearts. James says the same thing. Let's read James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you, you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or, or, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So it starts with the heart. Verses 1 through 6, he says essentially this. Humble your heart. Humble your heart. He's like, okay, well, what's the source of struggles? You have these desires on the inside. 
Why, why are these fights happening within the church? Why, why are these quarrels breaking out? Because you have something that you want in your heart, and you are willing to get it at all costs. You want something, and you will wound and hurt another person to get what you want. You covet, and you do not have it, and yet you don't have because you don't ask. Or, or if you are asking, you're like, Lord, give me this because I want it. Because I want to spend it on my own life, not for your purpose and for your kingdom and for your glory. I want what I want, and I want it now, like a childish human thinking that you can demand of God something that is supposed to be for your purpose and pleasure, and, you, and you're willing to wound another person to get what you want. Where does that struggle come from? It starts with a desire in the heart. So what's his solution? He goes on to say, this is how God gives us grace. Verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What do you do? You humble your heart. You humble it. You are team Jesus. Jesus is not team you. There's a big difference, right? Whose desires control who? His desires control you. Stop resisting in pride and saying, no, I want my will. And he's saying, no, what you really want is my will. Humble yourself. Your goal in life is to not have God opposed to you. Did you, did you read that? Verse 6. God opposes, fights with, is against the proud. Very first thing that you need to do if you want to communicate well is have a heart that is open to correction. It says, Lord, I want your will, not mine. I, I'm, I'm under your command. You are not under mine. I'm here to learn and grow and serve and be a blessing. I'm humbling myself. You are high. I am low. You are master. I am servant. You direct me here, Lord. Humble your heart. Second of all, submit and resist. Notice verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God and resist the devil. These conflicts that are breaking out in the church. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is saying. Uh, these conflicts, how, how do we get through that? First of all, humble yourselves. Second of all, submit yourself. Notice the small, subtle difference between the two. Humble myself is like, okay, God, you're God. But have you ever said, God, you're God, but I still have plan B? Think I've, okay. I'm really hoping, Lord, I, I'm submitted to you. I want what you want. But if what you say you want from me is a little too difficult, then I'm going to go with my option. I feel like my option's a better option. Maybe, you know, you'll catch up. James chapter 1, we don't have time to go there, but he says... If you're going to ask something from God, don't be double-minded about it. Don't have a plan B. Commit yourself to his will. If you want wisdom from God, he gives it liberally. He gives it without reproach, but don't be double-minded about it. If you want his wisdom, commit yourself to the wisdom he gives you and walk in it. So we, we humble our hearts, and then we submit and resist. We, we, we stop resisting the Lord, and we start submitting to him and say, okay, what do you want me to do? Your word, your wisdom, your will above my own. 
Show me what to do and I will obey you. And then stop resisting the Lord. Start resisting the enemy. Who is there behind the resisting? Who's there saying, yeah, fight for what you want. God doesn't really want you to be happy. He's whispering the same lies that were whispered in the Garden of Eden, right? It's like, man, when you give into that, you know what you're doing? You're accepting the same lies that got us into this mess in the whole first place. So submit yourself to God and resist the enemy. Stop giving in to those lies. Own your sin. Third thing, own your sin. Start with your heart. Humble your heart, submit and resist. Own your sin. He goes on to say, in verse 8, draw near to God uh, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the idea being... Own what's going on in your heart. If you've got a bad attitude, there's something that's out of place, there's some area that needs to repent, you own it. You go, hey, my hands are dirty here. I, I need to clean them. I need to get my own heart. Before I can talk to another person in such a way that brings resolution, that brings healing, that, that, be, that makes me a minister of reconciliation on behalf of Jesus. I have to have a heart that is humble, that is submitted, that is resisting the enemy, and a heart that has cleaned myself. If I'm clinging to sin, if I've still got pride, if I still want my way, if I've still got an agenda, i got to get rid of that. It's time to do some repenting. Own your sin. If your hands are dirty, clean them. If your motives are wrong, make a choice. Change them. Make a choice about your motives. I don't want to be motivated by this, God. I want to be motivated by what is right and holy and righteous. I choose truth. I choose love. I choose mercy. I choose forgiveness. I refuse to manipulate. Humble your heart. Submit and resist. Own your sin. Trust the Lord. As it gets down to the very end, here, and he's, again, in context, he's still talking about divisions within the church. Why are these quarrels here? You, first of all, you've got to humble yourselves. Second of all, you have to submit to the Lord and resist. Thirdly, you have to own your own sin. And fourthly, you need to trust the Lord. You are putting yourself in the position of the judge. And there is only one judge. There is one throne, and it's occupied by one butt. It's not yours. It belongs to the Lord. He alone sits there. And you don't have the right to be in that place. You're going to have to trust the righteous judge that if you stand on what is true, that he is faithful and true. That he will bring discipline where there needs to be discipline. That he will bring correction where there needs to be correction. Hand out justice. And hand out retribution where there needs to be those things. So the very first place that we start then is we have to start with our own hearts. Before we ever get to a place that you've got conflict, there's a fight happening between a friendship, in a family, in a home. The first place that you have to stop is go, where is my heart? Am I submitted? Am I humble? Do I want God's will above my own? Have I cleansed my own heart? Is there sin that's driving this and, and, and pushing this conflict, that sin in me? Do I trust the Lord? 
Once you've answered those questions, you're, you're ready to begin in the process of communication. But there's a, there's a warning. It starts with the heart, but the, the very next thing you need to do is tame the tongue. Tame it. James chapter 3, let's go back one chapter. We're going to do the first 12 verses here. I'll just read through it. Not many of you should become teachers. That's, to me, <laughs> that's a warning. That's a threat. <laughs> My brothers, for you know that he who, who teaches uh, will be judged with greater, excuse me, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. If we, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. I mean, look, at, look at the ships also. They are, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The, the, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It, it, it's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of the guy we just blessed. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Here's what he's saying. Tame your tongue. First of all, he gives the analogy of, of a bridle in the mouth of a horse. You direct this powerful, powerful animal through a bridle or, or a giant ship, right? Steered by just a little tiny rudder in the back. This little stick in the water is directing the course of this giant ship. What's he saying? He's saying, Choose to direct it. Don't just let your tongue just, you know, flap around and do whatever it does. Well, I, you know, I wasn't really in control. I was just, I was verbally processing. You can't do that. Not in conflict. Not when you're wounding the people that you love. Not when you want to be a minister of reconciliation. You can't just say whatever comes into your mind. Can you imagine if we just lived like that? No, whatever comes into my mind, I, I just need to do. You know how wrecked the world would be as a result of that? Of course we have to exhibit self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? So we have to tame the tongue. We choose to direct what we say and what we do not say. You have to choose to direct it, verses 1 through 4. Second thing. You have to know its destruction. Know what happens if you let your tongue loose. See what a small spark, what a small flame can do to the Calameopsis wilderness, to the Applegate Valley, to the Cascades over here. You know what a small spark can do in Southern California 
Look at the destruction that comes from that. Listen, the words that come flying out of your mouth have the same destructive power. And you better be aware of the kind of power that you have with your tongue. When I was little, my dad taught me to shoot. We're talking little. My dad was a police officer, and he's like, we're going to have guns, and we're just always going to have guns, and you just need to know how to handle them, right? And so I I remember being maybe like five years old, and and we're out, and he's showing us all the things about a gun. Okay, here's a gun. This is my gun. Um, If you ever see this, you cannot look down the barrel. Why? Let me show you. Boom, right? It blows up a can. Whoa. That's a big deal. That's a big noise. He goes, you never look down the barrel. You never pick it up without my permission. You never, ever touch it. He taught us how to handle it. You, if you have it, it's always finger off the trigger. He, I remember him barking at us to, to this day. Don't put your finger on the trigger. Don't put your finger on the trigger. Ne- keep it pointed away. Like he was on us all the time when we were little, right? Because he knew the power of that weapon to destroy He knew how harmful it could be. And he wanted to make sure from the time that we were little, we knew exactly how powerful it was and how much damage it could do. Be aware of this little member of your body. It is set on fire by hell. And if you let it run loose, if you don't choose what to do with it, it will destroy. There's no doubt about it. So you have to know it's destruction, verses 5 through 8. Verses 8 through 12, you need to use it for God's glory. He says, hey, listen, does it seem consistent to you that with the same mouth that we use to bless God and raise our hands and say, oh, God, you're so holy. I love you. Praise be to you. Hallelujah. With that same tongue, we can turn to the person that God has given us as a gift, our spouse, our kids, our friends, our fellow church members, people within the body of Christ that he shed his blood for, unbelieving people that he desires to save, that we could turn to them and with the same tongue that we just blessed God, we curse the ones who are made in his image. He goes, does that seem consistent to you? Does that make any sense whatsoever? Does a spring bring forth salt water and fresh at the same time? My brothers... My sisters, these things ought not to be. You make a choice about what you do with what you say. Know the power of your tongue and use it for God's glory. Use it for God's glory. You say, okay, Jeremy, I I, I hear you. And that's great. That's very, you know, um, theoretical. But I just need you to get practical. Can you just tell me how? How do we do this? How do we tame the tongue? How do we submit our hearts and surrender ourselves to Jesus? Well, we're going to back up one or two more chapters here. We'll go to chapter one of the book of James and, and look at something else James said in chapter one, verses 19 through 20. Two simple verses, but they pack a huge punch. You ready? This is what it says. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear. Slow. Let me, let me say this again. Know this, my brothers. Let every one of you be quick to hear and
to speak. Slow to anger. You need to slow things way, way down. The more that the heat rises in conflict, the more you need to slow things way down. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm going to just make a quick, quick note here. Listen, anger is a tool that we use to manipulate others. It's the shortcut, right? When you're frustrated and you don't know how to communicate what you feel on the inside, you get verbose. You get loud. You get intense. Why? You, 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 it's, it's just a struggle to bring it out and to talk about it. You're not quite sure. And the frustration is building. And I just want to get to the other side. I want you to do what I want you to do. I want you to understand me. I want to feel heard. And I, if, I, if I can't communicate it, I'll use power. I'll use power. Now, anger has a place. The Bible tells us there are times that we should be angry and sin not, right? There's injustices. Like the guy who was convicted today, 125 gymnasts that he sexually abused, we should be pissed about that, right? We should be angry about that sin. God is angry about that sin. There's a place for anger, not for the people we love. Not them. We should be angry, but not sin. I remember this one moment um, when my son was little and I, he was doing something repetitive that I told him not to do, right? And I'm like, hey, Elijah, knock it off. Hey, stop that. Goes back to it. Hey, I said stop. And then I did what I grew up with, you know. I, I barked at him. And I'm like, rah, rah, right? I'm like, rah, rah, rah. And uh, he's like, oh, he's like, okay. Okay, you know, and he stopped. And I'm like, yeah, see, you know, I told him. I told him. He got warning. You know, my wife is like, you shouldn't do that. And I'm like, babe, come on. I mean, I grew up, my dad yelled at me. I'm a fairly well-adjusted human being. <laughs> right? Okay, I've got a few flaws. Uh, you know, he's going to be fine. He, the, the, I guarantee you when he's, you know, 30 years old and he's get counseling for a whole bunch of other things that we did, uh, <laughs> that this won't even be a blip on the map. This won't even be a, a, a fading memory in, in his past somewhere, right? And she's like, it's not right, Jeremy. It's not right. You shouldn't do it. I'm like, whatever. Leave me alone. Later on that night, I'm having devotions. I'm having it in James, and I come to this passage right here. And the Holy Spirit, in the way that only the Holy Spirit can do, asked me a simple question in my heart. Jeremy, do you want your son to obey you because he loves obedience or because he's afraid of you? That simple question shifted my whole understanding of parenting. 
shifted my understanding. Now I still struggle. I still have all the same frustrations as everybody else. But I, I remember in that moment, God specifically putting his finger on something in my heart that I needed to understand. Jeremy, you're taking the shortcut right now because you don't want to have to deal with talking. And, and you weren't taught very well yourself, and you've got quirks and issues in, in, in the way that you communicate. And you want to take the shortcut and overpower him. But all you're training him to do, Jeremy, is to be afraid of you. You're not teaching him to love righteousness for himself, to love obedience for himself. See, this is what happens in marriage. This is what happens in friendships and work relationships. When things get heated and tension comes and anger flies and we're trying to push each other into a position and move each other, we, we might get results that we want, behaviors that we want, but we won't get it because of right hearts. We'll get it because of power. And that power is only as good as if somebody's afraid of you. When that fear is gone, the heart is gone. So, James here, in the Holy Spirit's wisdom, comes to you and to me and says, Hey, brothers, sisters, be slow to anger. Be slow to speak. And be really quick to perk your ears up and to listen so take out those sheets of paper, and I want to walk you through something just real quick. we only got a few minutes here, and I want to make sure that this is a solid investment for you guys, okay? That you're walking away with some real practical tools. First of all, I, this is tailored for those that are married, but it applies broadly really to any, any situation where you're trying to communicate in conflict. The first thing you need to know is conflict is normal. A lot of people, you know, I, I see people in my office that are like, oh, man, we're fighting. It's the end of the world. We hate each other. We're not going to make it. I'm like, actually, fighting's pretty normal. Like, having conflict is normal. Now, it can be dealt with in ways that are wrong, but conflict, and if it's healthy, healthy conflict is actually really relationship building in a relationship. It's very nurturing to work through things and to build a team together. So it's, it's normal. Now, this may sound strange to some, but it's actually very good. And every healthy marriage involves conflict. Some things are way too important not to fight for them. The difference is that in marriage, we fight for one another, not just with one another. The purpose of our fighting is to build relationship. The purpose of our conflict is to build togetherness, to have unity. It is not to hurt and to divide and destroy one another. In other words, we fight back to back, not face to face. Think about that. It's the idea of being on a battlefield. We're, we're not in conflict with one another. We're fighting for each other. I got your back. You got mine. And everything else that is dividing us is an enemy. And we're fighting for relationship and for togetherness. So how do we fight well? Well, we follow the advice of James. We, we be quick to hear. We be slow to speak. We're slow to anger. And as soon as you feel the tension in conflict, here's what's happening in your body physiologically. Cortisol, which is the stress hormone, increases along with adrenaline. 
the cognitive and, and problem-solving part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, begins to shut down. It dims, actually. Maybe you can watch this. Uh, there's plenty of videos online. You go to YouTube, and you can see how this actually works. When stress happens, the part of your brain that is cognitive, that thinks and reasons and problem-solves, goes dim. And the part that lights up is, is the reptilian brainstem, the limbic system, the part of you that's the emotional reaction. This is the part that controls the fight or flight mechanism, and like, okay, I'm, I'm either going to run right now or I'm going to claw your eyes out. That's the part of you that's activated and alive, right? So when that happens and stress starts to come and a cortisol is pumping through you and adrenaline is pumping through and you can feel your heart rate elevating, what's happening in your brain is that the part of you that would normally problem solve starts to shut down and the part of you that wants to fight or run away or get into another room or just avoid the conflict activates. And that fight or flight Reflex, once it's triggered, really causes a lot of problems. In other words, under stress, you stop reasoning and you start trying to flee or you feel the need to defend yourself and fight. So then the goal in communication then is to keep things from becoming stressful and to focus on training yourself to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So the, the practical tips that I'm giving you here are aimed at slowing communication way down so that you can communicate about difficult issues with strong reasoning ability and not fall into the pitfall of stress-filled conflict. So how do we change this reflexive behavior? So there's three essential steps for communication. The first one, these are, these are things that are widely understood. It's there in the book of James since the... 2,000 years ago, and now some guy's like, hey, active listening. It's this new thing. It's going to help you out. Uh, and we're like, oh, well, you know, it's been around a while. <laughs> God's pretty smart. Well, let's break it down into three essential steps. It goes like this. First of all, actively listen. It means the emphasis is on, in communication, is on hearing and understanding before you respond. When conflict is heavy and communication is stressful, what you need to do is make sure that you hear and understand before you respond. So just a quick you know, example. Um, I'm, I'm coming home late from, from work, and, um, and my wife says, you know, uh, hey, I get a little phone call. And, of course, I pull over because I don't want to break the law. And, you know, like, hey, babe, how's it going? And she's like, why are you late? Here's what I hear. You suck as a husband. You're the worst father that there has ever been. You are a terrible person, and I hope that you die before you get home. <laughs> right? That's what I hear. Right? Is that what she's saying? No. But if I respond out of what I hear, we're off to the races. Right? So I have to make sure that I hear and understand before I can respond. If I don't understand what she's actually saying, how can I respond to it? Communication gets way messy when I'm responding to things that somebody else is not saying. Right? So I have to hear and understand before responding. It involves withholding judgment or, or, or ascribing intent until we actually have heard the other person. 
So how do I do that? How do I actively listen? Well, my wife says to me, Jeremy, why are you late? I could choose in that moment to say, why do you hate me? Right? And she's going to be like, what? <laughs> Not going to make any sense. But here's what I can do is I can begin to ask questions. And this is step two. Actively restate what I think I'm hearing. Restating what you think you're hearing allows the other person to feel heard, first of all, to correct any misconceptions or to confirm that you're really understanding. So I can say to her, it sounds like what you're saying to me is that you think I'm a terrible husband and father and you hate me and wish I would die before I got home. And she can go, no. Maybe a little psychotic, right? That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, I had dinner ready for the time that I thought you would be home, and the kids are all sitting around at the table, and we've been waiting for you. They're drooling in their plates, and everything is getting cold, and it's now 15 minutes past the time I thought you would be home, and we're wondering when you're going to get here, and it's kind of frustrating. That's what I'm saying. Oh, well, that changes things, right? Now I'm here. So I think what you're saying here is that you're frustrated because you had dinner ready and I wasn't there and I didn't communicate with you and tell you I was going to be home late and you guys are all sitting there waiting, drooling in your food. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Okay, now I'm free to respond. That's the third step. Now I can actively respond. After clarifying what you've heard and understood, you may proceed to responding to what you have heard. This ensures that the discussion, even when heated, is around actual issues or problem solving, and you aren't just firing at each other in an attack and defend mentality. So you slow the communication way down, you put the emphasis on hearing, and you make sure that you hear before you respond. You only respond once there's understanding. Isn't that simple? Slow to speak, quick to hear. Slow to anger. The Bible is so wise. There's some other tips here uh, about attuning body language. These are just practical tips. Okay, so how do I communicate well? Well, don't have, you know, your angry face on when you're trying to communicate that you love somebody. <laughs> right? Uh, build a team. Like, say things that are encouraging. Like, hey, I know this is a struggle right now, but we're going to get through this together, and we're going to be stronger as a result of it. You're saying, I'm with you in this. I'm fighting for you, not with you. Okay, super simple. Provide feedback. Hey, that actually really hurt my feelings. Or hey, that really helped bring clarity. When you told me the kids were drooling in a plate, I didn't understand that before. That helps me to know what you're, you're actually trying to say. Thank you for those details. We're teaching each other how to communicate better through the process, right? Choose a productive venue. Around the table at Thanksgiving is not the best time to bring up how much you've always hated your mother-in-law, right? Choose, choose a, a right time to talk about those things, or a right venue uh, to do that. Like sometimes heated conversation is not going anywhere. Sometimes you need to take a walk and start texting. Sometimes texting is not the way to go, or email. That maybe it's, if you're not a good writer, do not ever text. Do not ever email, right? Use ample emojis when you're communicating, right? Lots of happy faces, all those kinds of things. Listen. The other thing you can do is table it. Hey, listen, right now, we, we, we're not doing well sorting through this. We need to come back to this. I need to go and pray. You need to go and pray. Let's come back to this. Tomorrow, as soon as you get home from work, I'm going to set aside two hours so that we can talk through this issue. Sometimes you can't resolve things immediately, and you need to carry things over. And if you need to, you listen, at 2 a.m., you do not fight better than at 8 o'clock, right? You fight much worse 
and dirtier at 2 a.m. than you do at 8 o'clock at night. So don't be afraid to table it to the next day. Last question, how do we keep unresolved issues from stacking up? We pursue resolution. This means not just problem-solving uh, a marital or relational issue, but doing so in a way that prevents the buildup of unresolved issues. And you do this by two things, confession and repentance. You own your sin. Hey, you know what? In this conflict right here, I realized that I behaved in this way towards you. It was hurtful. I'm sorry. That was wrong of me. Will you please forgive me? When after conflict, you own your mistakes and you own your sin, you allow all of the drama of that moment, all the trauma of it, to be put underneath the cross and buried and dealt with so you don't carry it into the next conflict. So you need to own your sin. That communicates to the other person, I don't want to hurt you. I'm sorry when I do. I don't like that that sinful part of me comes out. I, I, I hate that about myself. And I'm actively seeking God for change. And that's the second part, repentance. Ending a time of conflict by submitting your hearts to Jesus and confessing your sins to him and receiving his forgiveness while you ask for power through the Holy Spirit to change these sinful behaviors. You say, Lord, change us. Lord, forgive us. We're screwing this up. This is not how you intended for us to talk to one another. Lord, change this about us. And that keeps things from, you, you keep the list of offenses against each other really, really short. You making sense? Last thing, it's a question of maturity. Who initiates this? Who initiates reconciliation, forgiveness, and good communication? Who does that? The person who wants to be like Jesus. It's real simple. We act like he acted. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that it gives us. Now as we go, Lord, help us to apply these things in actuality, not just think about them in theory, that we might be children of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night.